0: Andy, what are you doing? We need to start the podcast.
1: Rob, I'm practising my conducting. But Andy, you're a clarinet player. Oh, I know. But Rob, in these crazy times, you need multiple forms of income. I need to broaden my options and I also need some passive income.
0: Andy, this means nothing to me. Who helps you with all these options?
1: I use my accountants, Quantify Accountants and Bondi Junction. Have you heard of them? Are they the ones that spell quantify with the PH? That's them, quantify, as in Q U A N T I P H Y. Look, they are terrific. A medium sized four partner firm who specialise in tax advice and compliance and retirement investment advice. They also have other divisions like mortgage broking and a superannuation division. They're just above the interchange of Bondi Junction and they're not your stereotype boring accountants. Maybe not hip, but definitely modern.
0: Okay, I'll give them a call. Andy, what's what's Maisie doing?
1: Sing, Maisie!
0: Quantify Accountants, proud sponsors of Coffee Cake and Culture the Music Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Coffee Cake and Culture the Music Podcast. I'm Andy Bromberger.
0: And I'm Rob Caldor, Andy. Wow, it's been quite a journey so far We've gone through the different families Functional and dysfunctional (laughs) Of the orchestra From the strings, brass, woodwind Last episode we heard
1: percussion, and then we did some strange instruments, and then we did the piano, and finally we're at another point in the orchestra, someone very, very important in the orchestra, and I really don't think we can talk about orchestral instruments without talking about this very important person.
0: We touched on this last time, the conductor.
1: The conductor, that's exactly right, and so I think, Rob, what we're going to look at today is not just the history of the conductor and how the conductors come about and sort of what their role is, but how that role has changed, especially in the 20th century. And, you know, what does a conductor do? But, Rob, before we talk about conductors...
0: Well, yeah, yes, Andy, I mean, I'm all about, uh, you know, sweet things in life.
1: <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, you know, Rob, I really thought long about... What cake or biscuit or something would go with a conductor?
0: Okay, something pointy maybe?
1: (laughs) That would have been a good idea. No, I actually think I'm going to go with my daughter's favourite cake. It's a Persian love cake.
0: It sounds interesting. I know Middle Eastern food is definitely on brand at the moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and the Persian love cake is so yummy because it's made with all those fantastic spices that are so Reminiscent of Persian, you know, it's got nuts, it's got pistachios, it's got all of these yummy things in it. And the reason I thought that the Persian love cake would be so fantastic is because we love music mm. and conductors, the whole idea of a conductor is to convey their love of music to the audience. And so I thought Persian love cake would probably do a good job.
0: So tell me, what's in a Persian love cake? How do you make it? I mean, obviously everyone's looking on the website now.
1: (laughs) So it's made with almond meal. It's got nutmeg and cardamom in it. It's got brown sugar. It's yummy. It's got rose water, all of these things in it that make it so, so, so yummy. And it's just a little bit different from your standard Western cake. It's more dense. I love to sort of decorate it with strawberries and I make little meringue kisses and things like that, just making it as pretty and as full of love as is possible.
0: Andy, I'm looking forward to experience some of the love once we've finished making this podcast because it sounds like my cup of tea or my ah, cup of coffee.
1: Beautiful. But
0: Andy, we'll come back to that later. Let's get on to conducting.
1: Yes. Okay. So if we're thinking about conductors, one of the questions I'm most asked when I do Coffee, Cake and Culture is what is a conductor and is a conductor necessary and what are they doing? So I'm going to throw those questions to you because as somebody who goes to concerts occasionally, obviously knows there is a person who stands out the front quarter conductor, it's interesting to get your take of what a conductor does and then I can fix it up once you've told me.
0: Well, Andy, it feels like a bit of an attention seeker because <laughs> – but no, no, more, more than that, I feel like they're managing – the different sections and volume and intensity and things like that with a whole lot of dramatic hand movements and pointing with the pointer, which I'm sure there's a proper name for it other than... The The pointer. The pointer. (laughs) I want to say project manager, but more it's a bit more than that because there is a dramatic theatrical element to their movements.
1: Yep. Okay, fantastic. There is no doubt that... A professional orchestra can play without a conductor. But what if there is a, a crescendo marking getting louder? How is the orchestra going to know how to crescendo, crescendo from where to where? If there is an acceleration in the music, the music gets quicker, who is going to organize? how quick that acceleration is going to be. If there are two or more melodies happening at the one time in an orchestral piece of music, who is going to decide which of those two or three melodies is the one that needs to be heard? And who is going to decide on what level the accompaniment is going to be?
0: Okay, so obviously it's the conduct, not to get too podcast nerdy, <laughs> but a bit, you know, managing the, f- the levels, the sound levels, the fading ins and fading outs and things like that's part of it. But it does seem to be a subjective kind of role.
1: What do you mean by subjective?
0: They decide which one gets the focus. Who's the lead? Is it going to be the violin solo or is it going to be <laughs> the brass solo? But tell me more.
1: So the conductor's role is really to keep a 100-odd musicians or professionals on the same page to interpret the music and to then convey to the orchestra your interpretation. So when you have a score, a piece of music, the notes are written, the dynamics are written, the Time gauge is given. You know, it might say moderato. That sort of means moderate. Well, you know, moderate can mean a million things. And it's the conductor's job to study that score, to work out their own interpretation of that score, and then to convey that to the musicians, and I suppose then also to the audience. I was just looking the other day at Leonard Bernstein talking about conducting, and he said a musician or an instrumentalist plays their instrument. But the role of a conductor is to basically play all the instruments, not that they physically have to be able to play all those instruments, but they have to be able to have enough knowledge of those instruments to then be able to tell the orchestra how he, in Bernstein's case, wants the music to be interpreted.
2: A conductor's work embraces such an enormous range You see, unlike the instrumentalist or the singer, he plays on a whole orchestra. His instrument is a hundred different human instruments, each one a thorough musician with a will of his own. And it is his job to cause them to play like one instrument with a single will. To do this, he must possess enormous authority and have psychological insight in dealing with this large group. But this is only the very beginning of being a conductor. He must also be a master of the mechanics of conducting. He must then have an immense amount of knowledge. Then he has to have profound perceptions of the inner meaning of music. And finally, he must have uncanny powers of communication.
1: So you can hear a piece of music played by a whole bunch of different conductors or conducted by a whole bunch of different conductors. And there will be subtle differences between each of them, depending on how each of the conductors interpret the music. I'm going to give you another analogy. If you have a fantastic theatre company and you hand them a play, they'll be able to tell them what the parts are, they'll be able to work it all out on the stage. But it's the director who pulls the whole thing together and gives it conformity and gives it structure and basically also stops disputes. You know, what if the the lead wants to do X and the someone or other wants to do Y? Well, it's the director who puts their slant on it. And basically a conductor is exactly the same.
0: I'm interested nearly in the human psychology of of it all because I suppose doesn't mean that we, we need to always follow a leader kind of thing.
1: I think this is a really good segue into the history of a conductor because, you know, a conductor is actually quite a new person in the musical world. A Conductors really only came about at the time of Beethoven. So Beethoven's dates are 1770 to 1827 and it's only sort of the beginning of the 19th century that conductors became important. So if we think about more music before that, so if we're talking about the Renaissance period, the Baroque period and the classical period, when we had ensembles, the ensembles were quite small, usually led by either the first violinist or the harpsichord player. And because these ensembles were quite small, it meant that everybody could hear each other. So if you've got an ensemble of, say, 20 or 30 people, if I'm playing the first violin part, I can pretty much hear what's going on in the orchestra and the music is also simple enough or structured enough that I can work out what's going on. I don't need somebody to tell me how to play it. And if I'm the principal violinist and I'm leading the orchestra, all I need to do is bring the ensemble together to start and use my violin or my bow to indicate when people need to come in and then sort of close everyone off at the end. That's pretty much my only job as the quote conductor. And the harpsichord, if the music was in the Baroque period, from the harpsichord, it's exactly the same thing. If you see early music performances today and the leader is at the harpsichord, you know, they fly their hands around occasionally when they need to tell specific sections when to start, but they're doing it all from the harpsichord. We're now going to listen to some music from the Baroque period and it's going to be led by the harpsichordist. Now you need out there to just visualise that the harpsichordist is letting the rest of the ensemble know when to perform and when to come in, although they are reading that on their music.
0: So, Andy, the harpsichordist is also conducting things. Now, how do they do that? With their nose? Aren't they using both (laughs) hands to play the harpsichord?
1: What the harpsichordist is doing is not only playing with their hands, but also conducting with their hands. So, there'll be times where they'll lift a hand and bring somebody else in. They can do that. But they're also using their faces, and they're using their bodies, and they're using sort of their heads to conduct too. Conductors don't just use their hands to conduct, it's a whole body experience and it's actually quite a shame that when you're sitting in a concert hall listening to an orchestra that you don't actually see the conductor because the conductor uses all their body to conduct the heads, hands, eyes, faces, everything, every part of their body to conduct conduct.
0: Maybe we've got to bring in the conductor cam and have, ah. it, have it on the big screen because obviously they're facing the orchestra so you're just seeing the back of the head of the conductor. That's
1: right. It's so much that goes on in the front. In fact, I know people who sit behind the orchestra knowing that they're getting the, the least good sound quality but just so that they can actually see what the conductor does.
0: So is there a personality cult of the conductor? Do people go, all right, I'm going to see Bernstein conduct but I'm not going to see Smith conduct?
1: <laughs> so... Uh- there is definitely a cult of conductor that people will go to hear certain conductors conduct. Absolutely. I don't know if they will will go and not hear a conductor conduct, but maybe. But there is definitely an excitement to go and see certain conductors. I remember a few years ago when Sir Simon Rattle came to Australia to conduct. Oh, my Lord. I was in an absolute mess. I mean... When he came out onto the stage, I'd already started crying because it was just like this is like superstar guy coming out and hearing his interpretation was just phenomenal.
0: I mean, Andy. To be honest, based on your little museum <laughs> episode in the last one, which for those that didn't hear the last episode in piano, mm. Andy did break down in
1: the Met in London, in, in New York, yeah,
0: at a, a piano's existence. Yes, yes. So, yeah. I mean, and, and to be you, you could break, <laughs> you could break down at you know a, a Twisties ad, yeah. but well,
1: I, I, Kleenex ads quite often.
0: But obviously, yeah. To be a conductor, you need. To be an extrovert and a big personality?
1: Mm, I don't know. Well, I suppose I haven't met every conductor, so I don't know. But there is definitely a self-assuredness that a conductor needs. Because if you think that you are going to be standing in front of 100 plus professional musicians, and they are going to listen to you, you have to have enough chutzpah, I suppose, to be able to feel that you're not being a fraud standing up there.
0: Imposter syndrome is a big one in the professional world. What gives you enough credibility to become a conductor?
1: Most conductors are were an instrumentalist first. There are very few people who sort of wake up in the morning and go, Hmm, I think I'm going to be a conductor, they usually start their careers as an instrumentalist of some description. And then I suppose if you are a great instrumentalist, the next step almost is to then be a conductor. It's like if you are a great football player and you retire, you might end up doing commentary or you might end up coaching you're taking your career to that next step. And I suppose it can be the same with with a lot of conductors, that they went so far with their professional life in the instrument that they played, that the next step was to have their own interpretation heard rather than always playing somebody else's interpretation, even if they're a soloist. So even if you are a soloist and you are playing with an orchestra and a conductor, there is still going to be a give and take between your ideas and the conductor's ideas. But if you're the conductor, it's your ideas.
0: If you're a conductor, is that you don't play instruments? Is that just the way it works? Or are there some conductors that will still pull out the flute or the violin?
1: That's really interesting because when conducting actually started in the 19th century, most conductors were actually composers. So you would conduct your music. And the first conductor who was actually only a conductor... I say that very much in inverted commas. Was a a guy by the name of von Bulow, and he was a pianist, but he wasn't a composer. And it's somewhere in the twentieth century that that sort of changes that the conductor is usually an instrumentalist rather than a composer.
0: It's a bit like you know writer condu- writer producer kind of concepts and that, you know, people that write a film or a TV show or something like that may not be the director. They often are not.
1: The analogy might be almost that you have great actors who then become directors. Yeah. You know, it's a, that sort of thing. You've been directed, but now you actually want to step on the other side and direct. But if we go back to the beginning where we had music being sort of conducted by the the harpsichordist of what the first violinist. When there was one guy who sort of conducted, and I say that again in a very big inverted commas, because the composer Lully, who worked for the court of Louis the Fourteenth, he would conduct. So I'm using that word sort of very liberally here, where he had a staff, and when he was conducting opera you know, if you have an opera, you've got people on stage singing, you've got an ensemble, you know, you've got soloists, you need something to hold the whole thing together. So what he had was a staff that he would bash up and down and up and down, not really giving any musical direction, but giving a beat. Because he was playing for the court of Louis XIV, he couldn't have his back to the king. So he would face the king, so he wasn't facing the musicians or anything like that and he would just bash his staff up and down and up and down. And there's a great story, it's true that he was conducting a Te Deum and a Te Deum is a religious piece of music. He had written this Te Deum because Louis the 14th had been ill. And he wrote, this is a thanksgiving, thank God for keeping the king alive. And the king didn't come to hear the piece of music. And Lully was getting more and more and more angry. And the staff that he bashed up and down had a sharp point. And he got more and more angry. And he staked his toe, his foot with the staff He ended up getting gangrene, the result, and the surgeons, and I say that also in a very big inverted commas at this time, said, we're going to have to amputate your leg. And he was a big dancer and he said, no, I don't want to be amputated. So he got gangrene and died. So that is a warning to all those people who want to be conductors that you can get to a very nasty end. (laughs) But let's have a little bit of a listen to a little bit of Lully.
0: we're returning to Lully, who you know had a nasty ending but in that piece there's a lot going on Mm. as in you know there are strings there's brass maybe in woodwind so what was Lully doing how did he manage that
1: literally just for a bashing that staff up and down and sort of waving his hand around occasionally. No other way, because he wasn't even facing the musicians. He was facing the king. So the music was simple enough at that stage, even though there's all this stuff going on, you didn't need to have great interpretation. Remembering also that it wasn't until the 19th century that music was really played more than once. Up until the 19th century, you would write a piece of music For a specific event or for a specific person, it was played unless it was opera. It might not ever be played again. And so there wasn't the concept of the exact performance as we have today or even in the 19th century where we all know the music, we've all heard it a billion times, and we go not only to make sure everything is right but also to hear the interpretation of the conductor because we've heard so many other conductors' interpretations.
0: I mean, it is quite funny that, you know, you'll go to see music and it's like you know what's going to happen. Mm. It's like, you know, it's not not like other forms of entertainment. You actually go, well, this is what's on the program, this is what we're going to listen to kind of thing. So, yes, the interpretation and the way... It's presented and performed uh, extremely important.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's the same as theatre. You know, you, everyone's seen Macbeth, Merchant of Venice, King Lear, all these things, all these plays. But you go and see the director's interpretation of them, whether they set it in modern day or in the past or whatever. All these things are organised by the director And although they're different things organised by the conductor, it's still the same concept.
0: Spoiler alert, Macbeth doesn't make it to the end.
1: (laughs) Or does Leah. (laughs) Mm -hmm,
0: Andy, I actually listened to a few versions of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and I could really hear the difference in the interpretation. Have a listen.
1: When we get to the 19th century, music is beginning to change a lot. The pieces are becoming much longer. Beethoven's Third Symphony was twice as long as anything that had been written, any symphony that had been written up until that time. And as we go through Beethoven's life, not only does the music become longer, but some it becomes much more complicated. The number of people in that orchestra also becomes bigger to the point that we get at the beginning of the 19th century where it's unruly, that you actually need somebody standing out the front, somehow holding everybody together. And one of the first conductors was, well, there were a bunch of conductors at the beginning of the 19th century. One of them was a composer called Spohr and the other was a composer called Weber. And what they did was they would sometimes sit Sometimes facing the audience, sometimes facing the orchestra, and just sort of wave their hands around, trying to keep everybody together. We don't know who was the first person to use not a stick, but a baton, but we think it may have been either Mendelssohn or Spohr. But we do know in 1820, Spohr went to London to conduct, and he stunned audiences there when he pulled out this stick that was a baton and he used that to to conduct the the orchestra so we don't know exactly who it was but it was probably either Mendelssohn or Schob.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. So when did the behaviors of the baton become codified? When did like when how how do you, you know you, you can have your stick?
1: Yeah. I'm I'm thinking that that probably came about throughout the, 18th, the 19th century into the 20th century, where, because if you look at what the stick, the baton is doing, the baton is doing some very interesting things. The baton is telling the orchestra not only where the beat is, one, two, three, four, but the baton is also telling you on which beat you are. So by the direction of the baton, will tell you whether you are on the first beat, the second beat, the third beat, or the fourth beat. The conductor isn't just going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, going up and down and up and down. Mm-hmm. He or she is actually going, so if it's four, four, it's down across your body, across the other side, and up. So one, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. And so if you're the Orchestra, you can see with the conductor's right hand, usually if they're right handed, where they are in the bar, where they're conducting one, two, three, four. The other hand is the hand of description. This is very, very fundamental, but it will tell the orchestra whether to play loud or to play soft or to bring people in or to cut people off or to give movement showing sort of play expressively or to play exaggeratedly or to play spikily. That's usually the hand, the left hand.
0: Okay, so you've got your right hand's giving you the beat, the left Mm -hmm. hand's giving the description. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I'm on my bassoon Reading the music and sort of in the periphery, am I watching the conductor?
1: You can pretty much guarantee that the orchestra is almost always watching the conductor. It's like we've got three eyes. You've got your eyes on your music and you've got your eye on the conductor. So you have to look at the conductor because you just never know what's going to happen. Because conductors are human and what you may practice something or rehearse something, but in the moment, conductors can do other things can have change of mind. Wow, that sounded really good. Let's bring this out again. There is always a fluidity between the performances, which is why going to a live performance is so exciting, because there's that sparkliness of the live performance.
0: I'd imagine, though, the rehearsal is absolutely important for the conductor because they're managing that as well. They're like setting it up today, and where the rehearsal could be different to where they perform.
1: So that's really interesting because before the last 30 or 40 years or maybe 50 years, when travel was more difficult, a conductor would conduct a single orchestra for a long period of time. So you would have, say, Bernstein who conducted the Berlin for a long time. That was his main job. And because of that, there was a lot he – could, he could play around with that orchestra a bit more because there was an absolute understanding of the relationship between the orchestra and what Bernstein wanted. But what has happened today is that although you have your own conductor – whatever orchestra it is. There is a whole lot of fluidity. People are flying in and out all the time. So if we think about the Sydney Symph, they play with a whole bunch of conductors, although Simone Young might be their chief conductor. The fact that Simone Young might only be in Australia a few times a year to play with them because she's also touring the world all the time playing with different orchestras. So when a conductor comes to an orchestra they often have already had their underling come to the orchestra and the underling knows what the conductor wants and so they've done rehearsals. So they've said, you know, this conductor likes this this way and this this that way and this this way. So the orchestra already knows. Then the conductor will fly in, maybe do a couple of rehearsals with them, sort of making sure it's absolutely the way he or she wants And then the concert comes. So because conductors play with a lot more different orchestras today than they used to do, conductors now have to be much more generic than they used to be because they don't have enough time to actually give their own conducting techniques and things like that.
0: If I'm playing in an orchestra is it clear what they mean, what the conductor means by their expression? Especially you may have someone that doesn't even speak the same language as you. Mm. So coming back to that codification, how yeah. you've, you've told me about the left and right hand and I, I think a drummer would be great because you've got that ability to <laughs> have different them? things yeah. at, at once <laughs> at different rhythms. Yeah, and yeah, different, yeah, yeah. You, know, you can't just walk in as a conductor. You'd imagine you have to spend a little bit of time with an orchestra.
1: Well, that's what the right-hand man does to start with. So he or she knows exactly what the conductor wants and so they come. But know that that's one of the, the amazing things about a good orchestra is that a good orchestra can um, interpret what a conductor wants to do. Now, sometimes a conductor will come in and rub the orchestra the wrong way and there'll be a lot of animosity between the orchestra and the conductor. But sometimes there's this absolute, you can just feel the love between what the conductor is doing and how the orchestra is responding to what the conductor does. I mean, if you had an orchestra and you put in front of that orchestra a bunch of different conductors, the orchestra will literally sound different according to what the conductor is. Or
0: it's really interesting. I suppose it's it's like having a good or bad manager. It's about having buy-in from the workers. It's mm. Like essentially, are the musicians? Are they sharing the journey with the conductor?
1: Think about a coach in a footy team. You know, it's exactly the same. You can have two coaches in a season. And they're doing really badly, and but the coach is great, and the coach is sacked. And a new coach comes in and suddenly that same team with exactly the same people in it start winning games. It's just the relationship between the conductor and the orchestra or the the coach and the footy team. And what's interesting about all of this is that if we look at the conductors in the 20th century, the conductors in the 20th century conduct very differently now to how they would have conducted at the beginning of the century. And that's because our work environment is a very different place today than it was 100 years ago. In 100 years ago, conductors could be aggressive, they could be rude, they could be arrogant, they could scream and shout, they could abuse, all these sorts of things because the orchestra just had to put up with it. Today, I don't think a conductor would get away with the sort of behaviour that conductors got away with before, I'm going to play you a little bit of Toscanini. Now I'm sure you've heard of Toscanini, brilliant conductor. He was ferocious. Listen to this him conducting his anger from a bunch of bass players. <laughs> You are always late, Corpo di un Dio Santissimo! Oh, you are dead!
2: È una vergogna! Shame on you! What kind of wings you have? You have eaten in-,
1: in your feet! Oh, Corpo di un Dio uh, uh, uno, uh e voglia di dare dei calci nel culo a tutti per Dio santo <sighs> E sono loro, quel bravo lì, io sono very good base. But per Dio sanni in uh, Italia opera, io are terrible I saw you,
2: uh, both oh, oh, always after, always later, oh per
0: Dio. Toscanini. It's quite an aggressive character <laughs> in this era of Me Too. He wouldn't last a moment, he and thankfully, not. No, I mean, that was uh, f- f- those poor bass players, <laughs> double bass players, must have just like gone home in tears. Oh,
1: I just can't even imagine what that must have been like. I mean, to be as, as to be a brilliant musician and to be oh, reprimanded like that must. Have, I just, I just can't imagine. It just. It would definitely not happen today.
0: It's interesting. I know in the film industry you will have directors that will purposely get their actors riled up to sort of get the energy that's required Mm. for that scene, for example. And I suppose, you know, getting people that are playing to feel an emotion could have an effect, but that was I mean that, that was abuse. <laughs> that, was abuse. that didn't trigger anybody.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you see, I think that conductors today have to have a much more cordial relationship with their orchestra. Yeah, they can get angry. If we think about Sir Simon Rattle, I'm going to play you now what Sir Simon Rattle said about the relationship between the orchestra and the conductor.
3: The orchestra and I have a long relationship here, and this has really felt like one of our second homes. And there's something which is beautifully symmetrical about the idea that we were just before the lockdown and kind of right after it, because so often, I mean, for instance, in our country, the orchestras were some of the first people to be. Put out of work and some of the last people to be put back so that this is another opposite symmetry when we first went back in in may and we played our first concert back at home in the barbican i think none of us were prepared for how emotional it would be
0: you can hear from what the good sir simon is saying <laughs> it's very much contemporary HR behaviour, mm. you know, how, how to be in a workplace. It's someone's workplace. You can't be abusive.
1: It's very different. I mean, von Karajan was considered a control freak. Beecham, the English conductor, was considered witty. Bernstein, he loved the camera, so he was always very much doing a lot of TV stuff because he loved the camera. Everyone has their own personality, but I think that today, I mean, if you look at Dudamel conducting, he is just so euphoric when he conducts. So you see personalities coming out. Simone Young says, you know, she can get really grumpy when things don't happen the way she wants them to happen. So you can imagine you are controlling all these people and if they don't do what you want to do, you want to hear, well, you're going to get crabby, but no one should be subjected to what (laughs) those poor basses were subjected to.
0: I think it's interesting when I've seen concerts and things like that, sometimes it's a challenge as a listener and a viewer where to look. Like are you looking at who's doing the solo? And you tend to gravitate back towards the conductor because it's the centre of attention.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really interesting thing because, you know, I said to you before about what you see from the back of the conductor compared to what you see if you're sitting in the orchestra. I've been to concerts where people have come to my classes afterwards and gone, oh, you know, that conductor wasn't great. You know, they weren't really doing anything. They were letting the orchestra sort of just go off and do their own thing because from the back you didn't see a lot. But if you ask maybe those orchestral members, they go from what he, was, he or she was doing from the other side was so expressive and so there was so much going on that just because you see someone flying their hands around and jumping around a lot doesn't necessarily mean they are either a good or a bad conductor and again if we look at von Karajan he was quite static he didn't move around a lot and if we look at Richard Strauss the composer Richard Strauss, who was considered one of the really great conductors, he barely moved at all. He was known for even looking at his watch as he was playing because he often had a poker game to get to and he had to, you know, if it was running a bit bit behind time, he'd pick up the pace a little bit so he could get to his game afterwards. But he is considered one of the great conductors. So, you know, what you see from behind isn't necessarily what is happening in the front.
0: Now, I've noticed that there are also, I mean, we're talking about the orchestra, but Mm. there's also conductors of choirs and Mm. things like that. So is there ever a situation that you may have more than one conductor?
1: So if you were to have a piece of music, say that you were doing a big mass or even Beethoven 9, which has the big choir in it in the last movement. So you would have the choir's conductor, the choir, that part, and then when the performance actually happens, they aren't conducting, but the main conductor is conducting, the conductor who's conducting, everything is conducting. But at the end, the choir's conductor will always come on stage and take a bow because they have got the choir to the point where they know the part and they just need the interpretation from the chief conductor.
0: Andy, how does one become a conductor? You've touched on it,
1: but Mm. how how, how do I quit my day job (laughs) and… Don't quit your day job. (laughs) Okay, so if you were to want to become a conductor, today you would go to and learn how to be a conductor. So you would go to a conservatorium and you would have conducting lessons. And quite often with conducting lessons, you you are given a score and you are told to go away and learn the score, which means that you sit down and you literally read it like you would read English. You know, you, you read it, you read all the parts and you see how the parts move and you would write on that score how you want to conduct it and you would conduct it by reading it and not hearing it, but by reading it. And then quite often, especially in European and probably in American too, you have a little orchestra and then you conduct that orchestra and then you are taught that your teacher would sort of correct your conducting.
0: So interesting, I also wonder about the sort of the cultural, both from a contemporary and, you know, previous era's time, and also different countries' cultures. So Mm. if you look at, say, the US, well, look, I mean, it's a country where everything is underpinned by a president, a leader, Mm. even like their main sport, American football, you have a quarterback that everything pivots around Mm. And you go to sort of, you know, places with maybe a, I don't know, a communist background Mm. where the role of a leader, you know, everyone's got equal rights and everyone, you know, may feel like, well, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? Am I going in a wrong direction or is it? you know what?
1: You would think that you were going in a wrong direction. But actually, during the USSR, there was an ensemble, an orchestra that didn't have a conductor and it survived for about 10 years. And they said if you have a conductor standing at the front, you've got imperialism and it's against our values and our ideals and so this is an orchestra that, that is it's for the people. It is the people's orchestra, you know, that, that they are all discussing and unifying and all that sort of stuff. Well, it lasted about 10 years. And as I said to you right at the beginning, that if you have a professional ensemble, they will be able to play without the conductor. But there is a point where the, the uniformity, the camaraderie, the opinion of one has to come about for there to be a sense of uniformity. You can do it, say, in a win quintet or a string quartet or even an octet or a septet, even a small ensemble because there aren't so many people to deal with. But if you've got a 100 people, how are you going to all decide how long you're going to hold a note for if it says to hold it for, you know, tenuto, which means to hold it for its full length? You know, how are you going to decide this? If it says staccato, something short, well, who is the one who's going to decide at this point in the music that it has to be this short rather than this short? And what if the the clarinetist wants it like this and the viola player likes it like this and the trumpet likes it like this? Well, who's going to be right? You know, you need somebody to put their stamp on it.
0: So it sounds like the conductor's somewhere between a CEO, a referee, the ears of the audience, a lot to manage with, you know, Two hands, a face and a baton.
1: It's huge. It's huge. Their job is remarkable. And I think that when I do talk about conductors and people often say to start with, you know, oh, well, they don't really do anything or do you, are they needed or all that. By the time you actually explain to somebody exactly what the conductor does, I think that people, and I hope you listening, have a much greater understanding of the complexities of of a conductor, and we've Rob only gone into a tiny, weeny little bit of the vast array of things a conductor does.
0: Okay, so Andy, let me let me throw it back to you. Mm. Who is your favourite conductor, and why?
1: Oh, good question. Okay, well, I'm not going to tell you who my favourite conductor is, but I am going to give you a story about me working with a conductor because I think that's really sort of puts into perspective how detailed the role of a conductor is. When I was playing, I got a phone call at about three or four o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday afternoon saying, are you doing anything tonight? And I said, no. And it was from an orchestra. And they said the bass clarinetist for, I think it was Boheme, has just called in sick. Would you be able to come in and play it? So I said, yep. So I'd never seen the music before. So I went into the Orchestra. I had a look at the music. The conductor had been told that the bass clarinetist hadn't seen the music before, was sight reading this score, and he was conducting from memory. And so he was conducting not only all the instruments, but the soloists, the chorus, everything. And he knew it all from memory. He gave me a cue to start every single time from the beginning of the piece to the end of the piece. This is the bass clarinet part. It's not really a hugely, sorry, all bass clarinetists, riveting part, but because he knew that I was sight-reading this part and he knew the score so well that he could give me every single cue from beginning to end.
0: And it's amazing, and I, you you know, your experience of going through that cuz also from your point of view it must have been completely daunting to just pitch up and you know be with a professional group when you didn't even know the music particularly well
1: No I didn't know it I mean I knew I know the music but I know my, my part at all and I was so blown away by that that I actually went up to him afterwards and I just thanked him I said you know that was just remarkable that you knew my part so well that you could actually conduct me
0: a- Andy thank you f- for that and also thank you for you know the whole description of the conducting it's uh, it's nearly it's a difficult thing to try and explain and understand and obviously you know the best the best way of really understanding it everyone is let's go and see stuff let's go and
1: absolutely
0: there's orchestras of all different levels but they've all got conductors.
1: Mm, Absolutely and I think that when you go to a concert next really watch what the conductor does and see how he or she relates to the orchestra and maybe if you want to give yourself a bit of homework go and listen to a piece of music conducted by a bunch of different conductors and see if you can work out and hear the different interpretation from one conductor to another.
0: What I like to do when I listen to music is often have some cake with it
1: <laughs> how about some Persian love cake mm, it's smelling good <laughs> so Rob that's actually the end of this second series looking at the instruments of the orchestra
0: Andy I've really enjoyed it I mean as always I've learnt a hell of a lot my brain is exploding and that's before the sugar buzz of the cake <laughs> but if you haven't had a chance to rate and review us the podcast is everywhere Apple Podcasts Spotify just just online on the website you can play it please rate and review us and let your friends and family and anyone know about the podcast remember series one was more a deep dive into concepts Mm, and melody and rhythm and things like that this series has been more about the families and we've come round to the leader of the band
1: that's exactly right the very important leader of the band so thanks rob once again thank you everybody we look forward to seeing you for our next season and series of coffee cake and culture the music podcast
0: see ya Podcast has been produced by etales.com.au. That's www.etales.com.au.